The scripture reading today will be from Psalm 19. If you happen to be using one of the Bibles from the back, that is page 456. The Psalms are wonderful because they show us sometimes even a gritty truth of the world we live in, but they also always point us to the solutions of the problems that we see. And uh, Pastor Mark is going to help us to see some wonderful truths out of this psalm. So let us read Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Whose voice is not heard? Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, if you're a guest with us, we are, like Pastor Ted said at the beginning of the service, we're in a summer sermon series right now on dealing with objections to Christianity. And I think this is the sixth one out of ten that we're going to deal with this summer. And it deals with the objection of science and how science has disproven Christianity. Before I get into that subject per se, I want to lay out some initial observations about what this sermon is not going to be. Um, just five quick things about the relationship between science and Christianity. Number one, the Bible was not written as a scientific textbook. All right, and it's not intended to provide detailed explanations for how the world operates. John Calvin, famous theologian, said, quote, Nothing is here treated of but the visible form of the world. Talking about what's in the Bible. He who would learn astronomy, let him go elsewhere. End quote. Number two, sometimes we ask the Bible to answer questions it's not even asking. The Bible is more interested in the why and the who of creation, then how 
creation works when it comes to issues like that. It's more interested in asking the who and the why questions rather than all the how questions. Number three, for much of science and Christianity, there is absolutely nothing to argue about. For a Christian, it does not matter if water is H2O or H3O. We do well then to be careful about what we choose to argue about. It seems that our world, thanks to the blessed development of social media, is all the more argumentative. And there are certainly things to argue about. But if we are talking with people who know more about something than we do, it serves us well to be quiet and ask more questions than give our opinions. Augustine, in the 4th century, probably the most important theologian of that time period, knew this, and we do well to take his advice. Here's what he said, quote, Usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and this knowledge he holds to as being certain for reason and experience. Now, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an unbeliever to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics, and we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? We do well to listen to Augustine. He has some good things to say to us about where we tend to lend our opinion on matters. Number four, for most facts about the physical world, the theist, that is those who believe in God, and the atheist, those who don't, would both accept the overwhelming majority of scientific facts the exact same way. In the vast majority of cases, a Christian can hold comfortably to a biblical worldview And feel at home in not only approaching, but also studying science. And number five, finally, a small portion of what is called today science, namely the issues surrounding the beginning of the universe, is problematic for Christians. While there is no problem between Christianity and science itself, there is total conflict between Christianity and scientific naturalism. In other words, the Debate that centers around creation versus non-creation, or what's sometimes called Darwinian macroevolution and atheistic naturalism. That is a huge area of conflict. But I want to argue this morning in my sermon that actually what we see in scientific investigation and observation is better understood by a creation mindset and a theory that there is a God who made for the world, made the world, and that, that that accounts better for the evidence than that there is no God. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 19, the text that was read for us. And it begins with a look into the heavens as the psalmist David, in this case, looks up into the heavens and says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And as he studies the heavens above, he then proceeds to look beginning at verse 7 with the scriptures 
God's revelation spoken to us, and beginning at verse 7. And finally, he concludes with a prayerful meditation for our own souls. So there's basically three sections to Psalm 19. There's verses 1 through 6, which deal with creation. Then there's verses 7 through 11, which deal with the Bible. And then there's verses 12 through 14, which deal with David's response to both creation and the Bible. So we're going to be looking at this psalm in reverse. We're going to start at verse 14 and work back to verse 1. And what I want to do is make three observations from this psalm based upon those three sections about how we should approach scientific investigation. I think this psalm applies to this subject because it deals so much with the topic of creation, which is the theater or subject of scientific investigation itself. So here are my three points this morning. I'll go ahead and give them to you in advance. First of all, we're going to talk about our predisposition naturally as human beings that we have a predisposition when it comes to scientific investigation. Then I want to talk about, secondly, the prescription for how to fix that predisposition and then the perspective that we need to have based on that prescription. So we enter into scientific investigation with a certain predisposition. God has a remedy for that. Once we take that remedy begin to wear that set of glasses, so to speak, then we can interact with creation the way we need to. If we don't fix the predisposition and we don't have the right prescription, we won't have the right perspective. So that's where I'm going this morning. So let's start with the predisposition, our predisposition in scientific investigation. You know, science is a way to find out about the world. This is our definition that we're working with because science can be defined in lots of different ways. But let me just define it this way. In a simplistic way, I'm sure. It's using observation and the tools that we're given to help with observation and experimentation to gather information about the world. Using observation and experimentation to gather information about the world. And that can help us or that can hinder us in our understanding of the world depending on our interpretation. Okay, so if I could put it together, we've got observation and experimentation giving rise to information, which gives rise to give rise to interpretation. Now, our interpretation is very, very critical in that. And what I'm saying in, in this first point is that our interpretation is not neutral. We are predisposed to something based upon that information that we're seeing. Okay, that information that we're seeing has absolutely let me rewind, say this again. That information that we're receiving has little to do with our fundamental disposition as we look at it. We see this in the psalm. Let me just point us here for a second. Before I get to the psalm, though, I want to give you an illustration of this, okay, to help help understand this. Richard Dawkins, famous atheistic scientist, okay, when he looks at science and the experiments and the information that it gives him, he sees no reason to believe in God. Here's a quote from Richard Dawkins. He says, today, the theory of evolution is about as much open to doubt as the theory that the earth goes around the sun. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims to believe not to believe in evolution, that would be a Christian, for instance, that person is ignorant, stupid or insane or wicked. But I'd rather not consider that. But others read science completely differently. For instance, John Houghton, the former professor of atmospheric physics at Oxford and the former chief executive of the UK Meteorological Office, says the following when he looks at creation through science. 
He says, quote, the size, the complexity, the beauty and order we find in the universe are expressions of the greatness, the beauty and the orderliness of the creator. End quote. So how can two well-educated men who know science look at creation and come to vastly different conclusions? One, reading it as a sign of the creator. One, seeing it as a sign for no creator. It's because science in its most basic Basic function, while it has observation as one of its core disciplines, that observation is inseparable from their interpretation of a certain scientific fact or observation. It's the necessary consequence of it. And so interpretations of what we see when we look at science, whether it's Dawkins or it's Houghton, are based upon and guided by faith commitments that we already possess when we go into the study of it. So everyone brings a faith to science. This means neutrality is an illusion. No one is neutral in observation. We form opinions about what we see based upon our predispositions. Here's what one man said, a quote, said, The adamant mindset of evolutionists is maintained as a result of faith, not evidence. Evolution is a faith system. Whether God is included in your picture or not, you have to accept your view of the universe origins on faith and trust because you weren't there and neither was I. We can't travel back in time to observe what happened and how the universe began. Whatever we conclude about the beginning of the universe, we have to conclude on faith. Neither creation nor evolution can be verified or falsified by the scientific method alone, since neither can be tested or observed in a lab experiment. And because of that, either model must be accepted by faith. So this means, brothers and sisters, that atheistic naturalism is as religious as Christian theism. Don't think any different. When people claim that science has disproved God, what they mean is the scientific method cannot substantiate his existence, and so therefore he must not exist. But the question of God's existence cannot be answered by the scientific method, because it's not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. In fact, when scientists claim that their work has disproven God's existence, they're making a philosophical claim which cannot be substantiated scientifically. The issue is not science. The issue is the predisposition of the person interpreting the science. There are many questions that do not have scientific answers because they were not legitimate scientific questions to begin with. Many of these questions concern the things such as faith and hope and love and truth and beauty and goodness. And those don't lie in the territory of science. See, modern scientific investigation says that a statement only has meaning if it can be empirically verifiable. That is, if the senses can't test it, we can't have any knowledge of it. But this principle guides most scientists today, and while it guides them, yet the idea that a statement has meaning only if it can be empirically verified is self-refuting. Why? Because that statement cannot be empirically verified. There is no way for the five senses to verify whether that's true or not. So some say creationism is unscientific because it's based on supernatural processes. 
whereas evolution is based on natural processes. But here's the question. When and by whom was it ever determined that science should be defined as purely naturalistic? Who, who, gets, who, who said that rule? Who says that we can only verify what is true by what is empirically verifiable? Who, who says that's the way the universe works? That's how we find truth. That's how we access what is real. So I would argue, getting back to my original point, that the reason Hitchens and Dawkins see evidence in science that disproves Christianity is because that's exactly what they want to see. They are looking for evidence that God doesn't exist. That's not a neutral position. And it doesn't matter how much evidence you show to the contrary, they're not going to be convinced. John Calvin said, So great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest light. What is the source of this then? Where does this predisposition to to not see God come from? Where does the source of this preconceived bias that we all have by nature, unless remedied by grace and redemption through Jesus Christ? It comes from sin. And David knows that. David knows that in this psalm, which is why he writes of two different kinds of sinning. In this psalm, notice in verse 12, we said we're working backwards, so we'll take the first section first. David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over over me. Okay, so he has two ways of sinning here, right? He says, there's these hidden errors that I have. There's these hidden faults that I have that I don't even know about myself. I am prone to sin in ways that I'm not even conscious of. The Bible calls this unintentional sinning. We can do things just by virtue of being sinners that we don't, we're not even aware of that we're doing. But David is humble and he recognizes that he's fallen and fallible and prone to error. And so he confesses to God, God help me. Help me with this unintentional sinning. Pardon me. Forgive me for the things I'm not even aware of that I'm doing to suppress you and to do my own will. But then he also says there's a second category of sinning, namely intentional sinning. That is sinning with a high hand. It's presumptuous. It knows exactly what it's doing and it's doing it anyway. And David also wants to be helped with those sins. He says in verse 13, keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And he finally, he prays in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock. And my redeemer. So he, he, he prays. Notice what he does here. He recognizes that he's a sinner. He's prone to sin. He's got sin he doesn't even know about. And what he does is he prays for pardon and he prays for power. He prays for pardon, forgiveness. Forgive me. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I'm not even aware of the things I'm aware of. You're aware of them. Please forgive me for them. Then he says, also, give me power to, to, to keep myself back from sinning in the ways I know. Now, what does that tell you about human nature right there? Honesty. That's honest. He's being brutally honest with who he is. 
He's humble enough to recognize that he's a fallen creature. And that's where it's got to start with us, right? That's where it has to start. It starts with recognition that we're not God. And not only are we a creation of God, but we're a fallen creation. We are broken and sinful and sick. We need, we need God's help. We need, we're dependent upon him to guide us and restrain us and forgive us and help us. And even let the words of our mouths be pleasing in his sight. And the meditations, the dispositions of our heart to be acceptable. I mean, do you feel that way? This is what a Christian feels like. This is what a man in his right mind does. Namely, he recognizes what his real problem is, which is his own sinful heart. And see, that's the predisposition that we need to have remedied as we come to investigate God's world and think about our creator. Our natural disposition as unbelieving people is rooted in sin. So, of course, when we come to a subject like science, some people will be predisposed to use it as a means of escaping accountability to their creator. Whether it's intentional or not. It doesn't have to be intentional like, I'm studying science because I hate God. There, I mean, some people are that bold to state it that way. But others are just doing what they naturally want to do and what they see is the way to do it. And it's just unintentional sinning. Just ignoring of the Creator. But when we're made humble and we recognize the proclivity of sin in us and the power of sin over us, we will turn to God. And it's in that turning to God that we have our sanity restored to us and that God provides us a prescription for the way out of that. And so that's our predisposition. So we need to understand no one interprets science neutrally. It's all based upon a predisposition that we have in our hearts to our, toward our creator, So, which is rooted in sin. Now, let's move secondly to our prescription for scientific investigation. So before we come to the place in verse 1 that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above, before we can get there, we need to have the right lens. So under this point, the second point, I want to state that God has given us a prescription. It's a pair of prescription glasses. Okay, I've needed them since I was 15 years old. I probably need them long before that, but I flunked the driver's test that told me I needed them. All right. So that's how I learned that I needed some glasses so that I could actually see things properly. And the earth, as, you, as most of you know, who have vision deficiency like I have, um, you know that, you know, the world was not meant to be one big blur. So. So we get a set of prescription lenses that we need. And God has given us this prescription lens that I will want to argue requires a whole lot less faith and is a whole lot more rational than modern scientific theory. In a day and age when people doubt that there can be any ground for certainty for anything, the word of God provides us with that anchor and grounding upon which we can stake our very lives. We never need to doubt that the Lord what the Lord has not or sorry, we never need doubt that the Lord has not revealed himself to us truly, for we do have real knowledge of his character and it is found in his word right here. Even if it's not a comprehensive knowledge, it is nevertheless a true knowledge and a real one. So the point of this text, the point of this part of the psalm, rather, in verses 7 through 11, is that God has spoken 
And the scriptures are the word of the Lord. They are the communication and revelation of the living God to us. And they have effects on us that are better than the effects of anything that we can read or study or watch or listen to. Six times in this little section of scripture, verses 7 through 11, David says that this, that God's words are the word of the Lord. I should say that his word, that God's revelation is his word. He says in verse 7, Describes it as the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord. In verse 8, he describes it as the precepts of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord. Verses nine, verse 9, he describes it as the fear of the Lord and the rules of the Lord. So six times he uses these, this phrase, of the Lord. That is, the God who created all that is and holds it into being has spoken. The God who knows all things that have ever been and that ever will be, who understands perfectly how everything in the universe works from galaxies to subatomic energy. This God has spoken with a clear law, a clear testimony, clear precepts, clear commandments, clear rules. He has given us a prescription. He has spoken. Think about this. And we know this, believers. We know this, brothers and sisters. But just be reminded this morning. Who knows us better than anyone? God knows us better than anyone else. He knows how people get to be the way they are. And he knows how they are affected by their surroundings. And he understands society and groups in society perfectly. And he knows all the facts about how the world works. And he knows the future and how everything's going to come out in the end. And he's wiser than any wise writer, no matter what any person in the world says about how wise they might be. And even the most accredited secular scientist, God is wiser. It simply stands to reason that what God says will be more useful to us than what anyone else in the universe has to say. I, I just want to believe the person who's the wisest. Who's been around the longest. Who who has all the information that needs to be had in order to make a good decision about things. And that's not going to come from any created person. It's going to come from the creator. And praise God, this creator has told us some things. He's spoken to us in 66 books. And given us a complete revelation of everything that we need to know. In order to live in a way that's pleasing to him and glorifies him. So a Christian view of the world, which is ordered and ruled by God, provides the necessary framework for fruitful scientific discovery. If the universe is born of the stuff of random chance and chaos, upon what basis can we have any certainty that our scientific observations are truly valid? Think about that. Wouldn't they be subject to change? But if God has established the earth and fixed its foundations, which the Bible says he has, then we have a platform to actually study science. Without it, we inadvertently undermine the study of science itself. What I'm saying is that for an accurate understanding of science, you need a Christian worldview. You need an, you need an idea that the creation is fixed. That it's established, that the observations you make on it can be trusted. But if you believe that a, that a universe was born out of chance and chaos, then what makes your static observations sure that they're going to be remaining that way? That they can actually be tested and verified as real in the moment you see them. 
See, the point is, is that God has spoken to us and given us his word. And that word provides a prescription or a lens that we need to not just understand science, but live a life, live our lives. And notice all that David puts in here about the blessing of God's word. As if we needed any other motivation than God has spoken to us and our creator has finally let us in on life and told us where the path of life is. He gives so many statements here in verses 7 through 11 about the preciousness and power and immense practicality of God's word for our lives. It's just it's wonderful. Just look at the first part of verse 10 and the last part of verse 11. He says in verse 10, more to be desired are they, that is God's words, than gold. And then verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, that is his words, there's great reward. David says that if you have a choice between God's word and gold, choose God's word. You got it. If you have a choice to make between being rich beyond your wildest dreams and having the word of God and the revelation of God given to you for your life, choose that. If you have a choice between the word of God, not just in gold, but much gold, choose the word of God more so. If you have a choice between the word of God and not just much and not just gold, but much fine gold, choose the word of God. The point is plain. The benefits of knowing and doing the word of God are greater than all that money can buy. So notice what some of this gold is that David gives us. It can be summarized with life and wisdom. God's word gives us life and gives us wisdom. A wise person is a person whose life makes sense in light of reality. And where is the light of reality most brightly shining? The word of God. So we go to the word of God and all day long we are being assaulted and being preached to by unreality. By the secular voices of our land who claim to be wise. But God is the essential reality. Everything disconnected from him is unreal in the way it was meant to function. And so therefore a world without God is mainly an unreal world. It can be dazzling. It can be pretty. But it cannot be light. It cannot be true. It can be dizzying and dazzling, but it's deadly. Without God's word to give us the prescription that we need. So, before I come to point number three in our last point, let me just summarize where we've been. We've seen that we have a predisposition that's natural to us, namely our own sin. And what we need to fix that is a word from outside of us, a prescription from a good doctor who knows us and created us. And that's God himself. And he speaks into our situation and gives us his word. And then after we have been made humble by our sin, we have received the glasses of God's word. Now we can enter in, look up at the heavens, explore his creation, and do it in worship. And do it with the right perspective. And so that's where we're coming with our third point. The perspective on scientific investigation. So with an awareness of our predisposition and the perspective that's given to us, now 
or I should say the prescription that's given to us, we can now study science with a correct perspective, which is a quest. Here's what I want to say is the end and goal of all scientific investigation. It's a quest to see and savor the beauty of God. That's the end goal of scientific investigation, to see and savor the beauty of God. Christians should care about science because it allows us to know God. Not only from his word, but from his world. Because God has revealed himself in two books. The book of natural revelation, which is creation, and the book of special revelation, which is the Bible. God is now, granted, there are some differences in clarity of those two books in terms of specificity. But nevertheless, God is speaking. God has revealed himself. And we have just looked at scripture and how now we're going to turn to nature. And what we see here is what creation reveals and declares. David focuses on the skies in the first six verses of the psalm. And in the span of these six verses, he tells us much about natural revelation and what it reveals to mankind. Notice what he says in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. He's saying during the day, God is speaking. During the night, God is speaking. The day is speaking. The night is speaking. Or to be more precise, it pours forth speech. It doesn't whisper. It shouts and it shouts continually. And notice it's a universal language that creation is speaking to us. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. There is no speech where it goes unheard. The knowledge which pours forth from days and nights is not is is not verbal, but it's visual. So God speaks to us. Verses seven through eleven of this psalm is all about God's verbal revelation. Verses one through six is his visual revelation. So when we look up at the heavens at night or we're looking around creation during the day, it's pouring forth knowledge of God, what he's like. Nature is a trans-geographical and trans-temporal language. That is, there is no place God is not speaking in it, and there is no language that doesn't understand it. Because it's a voiceless knowledge. It doesn't require a linguistic interpretation for it. Every culture on earth has access to the glory of creation. The result of this is that all men can be held accountable for acknowledging the truth of what that creation communicates. Namely, that God is a glorious creator. Every person is held accountable by that reality by virtue of being born in God's world. And it tells something. What is it speaking? What is day-to-day pouring out? What is night-to-night revealing? What is it revealing? The glory of God. The greatness of God. So to sum it up, let's sum it up. What we see in these first four verses. Nature is pouring forth knowledge day and night. And this knowledge is not verbal. It's visual. And this visual knowledge is available for people all over the world to see And the knowledge that's imparted to them is that God is a glorious creator and they are accountable to him. Now, 
to all who will listen to him, God's world is bubbling forth like an irrepressible mountain spring, an ongoing, incessant, ceaseless disclosure of God's power, splendor, and majesty. To all who will look and listen during the day, God is being proclaimed in the cloud and the sky and the rain and the rainbow. When day is done and the night takes over with moon and meteors and galaxies galore, God is speaking. So together, day and night is proclaiming one consistent message. Namely, God is great. God is elegant. God is exquisite. God is beautiful. God is enthralling. God is important. What does creation tell us about God? If we just look up or look around. It tells us that God is not created. Creation is not eternal. God eternally existed prior to creation, and creation is contingent upon the existence of God. We learn that from looking at creation. Someone made this. God is alive. He speaks and he breathes life into his creation. We see it with the changing of the seasons and the voices of birds, and or the chirping of birds. I don't know if they quite have voices, but call them voices. And the the feeling of the wind and the heat and the cold. We see God is independent. He doesn't need creation. He's not dependent on it. Everything apart from him is created by him and dependent on him so that it simply would not have come into existence or continue to exist without him. And that he's transcendent. That is, he's above his creation. He's separate from it. But he's also imminent. He's involved in his creation. And he's at work providentially sustaining and ruling over it. We see that he's personal, that he's powerful, that he's beautiful, that he's generous, that he's orderly, that he's loving. We can discern all that from his creation. Think about this. I want us to step back and just do a little... I want to throw you some scientific information and just let you just bask at the wonder of God. I hope this helps you worship. I hope this helps you get a grasp on how creation reveals to us the glory of God. How fast is fast? Why don't you think about that, okay? How fast is fast? The speed of light runs at 186,000 miles per second. That's fast. That's fast. One second, a flash of light can travel around the earth Seven times. Our moon is 240,000 miles from earth, and yet it takes about one and one-third second for light to get from here to there. And Genesis 1-3 said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Just 186,000 miles per hour, no big deal. What about how far is far? How far is far? Imagine an airplane going 500 miles per hour, okay? It's running 500 miles per hour. It would take three weeks to reach the moon. It's going to take 21 years to get to the sun. It's going to take 900 years to reach Pluto, at which time everyone inside the plane is dead. So what about the next star? Say say we get to Pluto. That's 900 years at 500 miles per hour in an airplane. The next closest star is Proxima Centauri, and if you were bored with Pluto, it seems, you could take your airplane and travel another six million years to get to the nearest star, traveling at 500 miles per hour. 
And that's just the closest star. The Milky Way contains 150 to 200 billion stars, and we are one galaxy among some 150 billion others. Each with tens upon tens of billions of stars each. And yet Psalm 147.4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. This is billions upon billions upon billions of stars. Well, how big is big? We've asked how fast is fast, how far is far, how big is big? Our sun, 864,000 miles in diameter. Okay, you can, you can line up or you can actually make 333,000 earths from the matter of the sun. Now, line up a hundred earths next to each other, and you'll still not span the diameter of the sun. And yet, there are 150 billion galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars, and God created and sustained all a word. This is God. This is what the creation is meant to scream to us about his greatness. Jonathan Edwards got it right. He writes in his personal narrative about his life. He's got this point. He's writing about... What created him is writing the United States, the northeast area of the country. And notice what he says. And as walking there, and he's just talking about what he's just walking alone in his father's passion. He says, as I was walking there and looking up on the skies and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. I seemed to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty and also a majestic meekness and awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, moon and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for continuance and in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice, my contemplations of the creator and redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt, so to speak, at the first appearance of thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity each time to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightning's play and hear the mystic and awful voice of God's thunder, which sometimes, oftentimes, was exceedingly entertaining leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural to me to sing or chant for my meditations or to speak my thoughts and soliloquies with a singing voice. Can you imagine Jonathan Edwards? This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Can you imagine him doing that? I can. I'm not even a singer. But I mean, you can imagine him just breaking out in song and singing about 
what he's seeing in God. My sweet little girl is very terrified of storms. She crawls on my lap and she doesn't want to hear them. One day, man, they know God's greatness in those storms. And that there is nothing to fear safely hidden in him. Let me close with just a few observations and then we'll conclude. Clyde Gilby, a former professor, gave some counsel about how to stay alive to God's world. How, how we can be like, more like Edwards and just kind of wake up a little bit in the midst of our hustle and bustle American life and take it in. Here's what he says. I'll give you just six of them very quickly. He says, at least once every day, he said, I shall look up at the sky and remember that I am on a planet traveling in space with wonderful, mysterious things all around me. Number two, I shall not fall into the hood that this day or day is merely another ambiguous or plotting 24 hours, but is rather a unique event filled, if I so wish, with worthy potentialities. Third, I shall open my ears and my eyes. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be turned at all at what they are, simply be glad that they are. Number four, I shall sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in childhood and try at least for a little while to be a child again. Number five, I shall not allow the devilish onrush of this century to usurp all my energies, but will instead fulfill the moment as the moment. I shall try to live well just now because the only time that exists is just now. And then finally, number six, even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic neither run by an absentee landlord today, this very day, some stroke added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. So how does all this relate to Jesus? Well, God's revelation and creation in general is enough to give people the knowledge of God's power and glory but it leaves them without excuse and without hope. It's not sufficient. Suns and moons and stars and trees and animals and plants are not sufficient to tell you how to be saved, how to receive God's mercy, how to be an object, you who, like David and like me, are sinful, full of hidden errors and presumptuous sins. We need the prescription that God gives in his word, like we've said. And that word centers upon the revelation of the redemption available to us in Jesus Christ. That's why God gave us this book. Because we can't discern this from creation. We need this book to understand creation. And what this book gives us is how God is saving this creation. And how he's willing to save a multitude through his through his son Jesus Christ. I mean, the book of the Bible, in a sense, is I mean, from Genesis one, the creation of the universe, at Genesis or Revelation twenty two, it's the renewal of the universe. That's what the book is about: how creation happened, how it fell, and we got into this mess of sickness and suffering and death and disease and police violence and racial hostility. How, how all that happened? How Jesus came to live and die and rise in and renew a people, and with it, the whole creation. In virtue of his death on the cross, he reconciled to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, because made peace by the blood of his cross. And then through faith in him, repentance toward him, and submission to him as Lord, King, we are then brought into his kingdom, which is coming when he returns. We will be a part of that kingdom as inherit the new heavens and the new earth forever. That's the Bible. 
That's the story of Scripture. And so we can't ever talk about creation or observing creation without talking about our need for Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings restoration. He is the wisdom of God. He is the source of true joy. All the things that says about Scripture here is true of Jesus because he's the point of Scripture. He's the one who revives our soul. He's the one who opens our eyes. He is true. He's the one who endures forever. He's the only whom God has provided who pardon our sins and give us power to walk in God's ways. And he's the only one who can purge the universe of evil and remake it into God. So let me conclude with these four questions. Pray. What's your relationship? Let me personalize this. What is your relationship creation? When you look at it, what effect does it have on you? Are you stunned by the greatness of God or are you dead to his voice? When the Bible, what effect does it have on you? You count it as more valuable than much fine gold or is it just another book? When you look at sin, what effect does that have on you? Are you comfortable with it? Are you not even convinced of it? Or do you cry out for pardon and power to fight it? And when you look at Jesus, what effect does he have on you? If you know the glory of God in creation, the law of God in the Bible, and the sinfulness of your own heart, like this psalm teaches us, Jesus will be everything to you. He'll be everything to you because you know how great God is. You've seen him in creation and you've trembled. This God who created not just this earth, but billions upon billions of galaxies created me and I'm a rebel against him. I'm a, I'm fallen. I'm a sinner. I have not fulfilled his will, done, obeyed his law, followed his word. And then that creates a sense of undoneness in you. And then you go and you find out, wait, there's, huh, huh? Huh? There's a there's a there's hope. There's hope. What's his name? Jesus Christ. And you learn about Jesus and you know Jesus and you go to Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you identify with Jesus in baptism and you link arms with his church and his people and you say these are my people. We're going to the we're going to the kingdom. We're in the kingdom. We're going to glory together. These are my people. And you link arms together because you know who you are. You know who God is. You know what his word demands. And you are rejoicing in the Christ that he has provided. May that be true for every one of us in this room this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity now to gaze at your word and at your world for these few moments. Pray that this wouldn't be the end of that gazing that it would be for most of us in this room a renewed a renewal of our commitment by your grace to look at your books more, to gaze at your creation, to gaze at your word, to gaze at your world and your word, and be transformed by what we see. We thank that this is your world, God. We don't know what we would do if this was just a chaotic accident. We thank you that you are in control, sovereign over it, at work in it, and accomplishing your purposes for it, which are good and great and glorious. And we thank you that by your grace, through faith in Jesus and repentance toward him, that we are a part of it. We thank you that we're, a, we're, we're, not, we're going to be a part of this world forever. Not the world as it is, praise your name, but the world as it will be. But all those who have not bowed the knee to Christ, turned to him, they'll not be a part of this world. They might be a part of this world now, but they'll have no part in the kingdom of God, which will be the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. We pray that now would be the day of salvation for some. 
that those who are in this room right now hearing my voice or on the Internet hearing my voice would right now in this moment call out to you to have mercy on them and to save them and to be gracious to them. And we ask all of this for your great glory, for there's no greater glory than when you save someone and bring them into your kingdom. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.